Some time ago, Cheris Nixon gave a series of talks at Holy Trinity Church in Pitlochry. Cherith has adapted the talk specially for this programme. Today we hear about the parable of the labourers in the vineyard. The labourers in the vineyard. A few weeks ago, the New Testament reading set for our church was the parable of the labourers in the vineyard. You remember, it's the one where a landowner hires three lots of labourers at three different times of the day, and then, much to the disgust of those who've been working for longest, pays them exactly the same when the day's work is ended. Whenever I read that particular parable, I'm immediately transported back in time to the late 60s, when I led a summer Bible study group held weekly at my parents' house in a small North Staffordshire mining town. It was because I was at university and had done a first-year subsidiary in biblical studies, or perhaps because no one else wanted to do it. It was all very informal. About ten of us met every week in my parents' living room, sitting with our Bibles, cups of tea, and slices of my mother's splendid sponge cake. There were three of us in our late teens or early twenties, myself, my now husband, and my best friend Molly, and then were there were my parents and several other members of our Anglican congregation, all in their fifties and early sixties. One couple, the Smiths, hadn't been coming to church for very long. Mr Smith was a retired miner who was then working as a school caretaker. I can see him now. He was small and wiry with long sinewy arms and a bullet head. Mr Smith prided himself on calling a spade a spade. The small army of women who cleaned the school all adored him, but were wary of igniting his very short fuse. I think he'd begun coming to church because his wife suddenly had, and he wanted to check what she was getting herself into. But he'd stayed, and become more and more interested in this Christian stuff. His wife had confided in my mother that he was changing. He don't lose his temper like he used to, she said, and lowering her voice. He doesn't come back from the pub, the worse for wear, as he used to. He doesn't bed like he did on the dogs and horses, neither. Week by week, our study group was looking at the parables, and all was going well until we hit the labourers in the vineyard. I'd done my homework and studied all the commentaries I could get my hands on. I read the passage aloud to the group, and then, with all the enthusiasm of a 19-year-old who had quite recently become steeped in the joys and challenges of the Christian faith, I began my exegesis. I explained that the landowner represented, of course, God, and that the vineyard was the world itself. The labourers were those who'd given their lives to God and were, to quote the prayer book, living and working to his praise and glory. I reminded them that the work was described in the previous chapter of Matthew, where Jesus had made it clear that anybody who fed the hungry, showed hospitality to the stranger, gave clothes to those who had none, and visited the sick or those in prison, did these things not just for the recipients, but for Christ the King. I mentioned Christ's command to his disciples to go into all the world and preach the gospel. While we were having an amicable discussion about the importance of Christian service, I noticed that Mr Smith was sitting more and more upright. We moved on to the rewards. The first labourers received a fair wage for a day's work as they had agreed with the vineyard owner. Because of the owner's great generosity, all the other workers, no matter how short the time they'd laboured, got just the same wage. I spoke with great enthusiasm 
enthusiasm about God's grace. It did not matter when you gave your life to him, as a child or even on your deathbed. The wage of eternal life in his loving presence was the same. It wasn't the volume of work you did that mattered. It was your commitment to him. I reminded them of the thief on the cross who acknowledged that Jesus was Lord and King and who was promised an immediate place with him in heaven. How wrong the early comers were to begrudge the late comers their wages. How wrong it would be for those who'd been Christians for years to begrudge the late comers their place in the eternal kingdom. I beamed round the study group and then caught Mr Smith's eye. He was sitting forward, shoulders hunched, fists clenched and face puce. Do you mean to tell me, as them who spent their whole lives pleasing themselves, drinking and gambling and sleeping with loose women, now then, Bob, his wife said, putting a hand on his arm. He ignored her. Do you mean to tell me, as such as them, can turn round when they're dying, say sorry, God, and get into heaven, same as those who's given up all them things for years and done the best to live good lives? If that's what you're saying, it can't be right. I'm not saying it, Mr Smith, I protested. Jesus said it, he snorted. Molly, also a keen young Christian, came to my rescue. But Mr Smith, you don't understand. We can't earn our place in heaven by the things we do or don't do. We could never work hard enough or be good enough to deserve it. It's by God's grace and generosity that any of us get there. Mr Smith glowered. Then what's the point of living a good life at all when God's going to let in them as never did a thing but please themselves? Only if they really, really repent for all the things they've done that displease God and sincerely acknowledge that he's their Lord, I said quickly. He folded his arms and snorted again. Someone else said, But Bob, the parable says it's not the fault of those who weren't hired until late in the day. No one else gave them work. Perhaps they represent those who've never heard the gospel or have had it presented in such an unattractive way that it didn't go home to them. So, Mr Smith asked belligerently, my mother, always forthright, but always kind, tried. Bob, it's like the parable of the prodigal son we did last week. You remember the elder son and how resentful he was when his father welcomed his brother back and gave a party for him. You remember what the father said? My son, you are always with me and all that I have is yours. What the elder brother was forgetting, and what I think you're forgetting too, is those who remain close to God and work for him, have the great joy of his presence always with them, and the tremendous satisfaction that comes from serving him. When you spent all last Saturday up on a ladder with George and Walter Jones getting the cobwebs off the roof beams in the church, didn't you tell me you'd never had such a good time in your life? Mr Smith looked slightly sheepish, but stuck to his guns. I'll still say it in a fair, he muttered. My father, a man of habit who started to get ready for bed at ten o'clock, whatever else was going on, put an end to the discussion by saying that it was late and that most of us had to get up for work in the morning. But it didn't end there. From then on, whatever we were studying, Mr Smith dragged the discussion back to the labourers in the vineyard and the injustice of it all. I found it very difficult. I was very young. Finally, my father had had enough. Bob... He said, two things occur to me. One is that what you're really saying is that you envy all those who spend their days on wine, women and song because a life spent in the pursuit of pleasure 
is preferable to a life spent in the service of the Almighty God. The Almighty God, Bob. And that's the other thing. Remember, the vineyard owner asked the moaners whether or not he's allowed to do just what he chooses with what belongs to him. You're not arguing with me or my daughter. You're telling the maker and ruler of heaven and earth that he's got it wrong, that you know better than him who he should let into his own eternal kingdom. I think you need to consider that very carefully, Bob. Mr Smith subsided and never mentioned the vineyard wage dispute again. I was as struck as he was by what my father had said. It was an aspect of the parable that hadn't occurred to me, focused as I was on the grace and generosity of God. Of course, that is what the parable is about. But it's also about the absurdity of questioning the right of God to be just that. God, whose hands flung stars into space, who touches the mountains and they smoke. God, who is not only the essence of love, but of awesome power and authority. How often do I, do we, like Mr Smith, forget just whom we're dealing with? How often do we think of God as something we've chosen to believe in, a part of our mindset? How often do we almost feel we're doing him a favour when we pray or read our Bibles or come to church? Do you remember the bank manager in the cupboard advertisement years ago? Do we sometimes treat God like that, as a helpful being kept in a cupboard in our lives whom we can pull out when we want him to do something for us or when we remember that he's there? As my father said years ago, we need to consider that very carefully.
my eyes up to the hills Where does my help come from? My constant help comes from the Lord Who formed and framed it all His command. Why should I fear when all my days are in my Maker's hands? In love, He watches over you each step. Guide he'll keep the Lord who guards and keeps his own will neither snooze nor sleep.
Jeremy Irons has recorded the Psalms from the authorised version of the Bible. Today we hear Jeremy reading Psalm 121. It's followed by Ensemble Zap Mama, singing music inspired by the Belgian Congo called Brlac, composed by Marie Dolm. I will lift up mine eyes unto the hills from whence cometh my help. My help cometh from the Lord, which made heaven and earth. He will not suffer thy foot to be moved. He that keepeth thee will not slumber. Behold, he that keepeth Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is thy keeper. The Lord is thy shade upon thy right hand. The sun shall not smite thee by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord shall preserve thee from all evil. He shall preserve thy soul. The Lord shall preserve thy going out and thy coming in from this time forth and even forevermore. So 
Sometimes you gotta shut your mouth Even though you hold the reins But you can save yourself the pain And just hold your peace Just hold your peace And let love reign Let love reign Because blessed, blessed are the peacemakers For they shall be called the children, the children of God. Church of Scotland. Today she has a thought about turning guns into ploughs. In the Old Testament book of Isaiah chapter 2 we read these words. They shall beat their swords into ploughshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation neither shall they learn war anymore. These words are words not only of hope, but apparently words to inspire and indeed words to live by. Because across the world, there are those who are doing just that, simply from a desire for peace and a desire for a safer world. But it's not swords that they're beating into plowshares, it's guns. In Sierra Leone, 
after its bitter and bloody civil war, which raged for most of the 1990s until the UN finally intervened in 1999. Tens of thousands of tons of weapons were collected under their supervision. And men were then trained as blacksmiths, whose job it was to recycle the weapons into good, cheap tools for farmers. They began to change assault rifles into bush knives, axes, and planting hoes. And they did that so that the land could be cleared and crops planted. In Cambodia, thousands of guns left behind after decades of armed conflict in the country have been shaped into works of arts by Sasha Constable, a descendant of the English artist John Constable. In 2003, she became a co-founder of the Peace Art Project Cambodia. But it's not all happening in African and Asian countries experiencing civil wars. It's in Western countries too, who see a different form of violence every day. Crime guns from the Los Angeles and New York police departments have been melted down to create a peace tree. Then there is a sculpture made from decommissioned firearms in Washington, D.C. Esther Ortsberger used 3,000 guns for her symbol of hope, a 16-foot plowshare. She said, naturally, I handle guns with a degree of pain, knowing that many of them have been taken, have been used to take the lives of innocent people. It's happening in Britain, in Europe, and even in Kandahar, in Afghanistan, where they say there is a trader who sells beautiful white and pink flowers in vases made from the cases of American and Russian bones. Every generation is challenged to turn swords into plowshares. Of course, we may not have a stock of AK-47s under our bed, but we can all do our bit of peacemaking. Think of whatever you have in your life which has the potential for violence or destruction, which could destroy the peace and harmony of even life itself, and offer it to God and say, Lord, remake it, transform it. Because when we start doing that, we start to get in tune with God and we start to find our inner peace. And as we live peace, so we find it spreads. And the bit of the world in which we live begins to blossom. And the powers of death and destruction out there begin to lose their hold on us. And it's up to each and every one of us because we have been commissioned to complete the task which Christ, the Prince of Peace, started. We're told by Teresa of Avila, Christ has no body now on earth but yours, no feet but yours, no hands but yours. Yours are the eyes through which the compassion of Christ is to look out onto a hurting world. Yours are the feet with which he is to go about doing good. And yours are the hands with which he is to bless all now. Christ has no body now but yours. 
Prisoners Week Scotland starts on Sunday, November the 21st. The Roman Catholic Archbishop of St Andrews in Edinburgh, the Most Reverend Leo Cushley, outlined some of the activities which are taking place. More details are available on the website, prisonersweek.org.uk. My dear friends, Prisoners Week Scotland takes place this year from the 21st to the 27th of November, and this year's theme is called Together. It's a way for us to explore how we can support those affected by imprisonment, not just those who are incarcerated, of which in Scotland there are now over 7,000 persons, but also the many children who have a parent in prison, and, of course, the victims of crime. As Christians, we are called to help those who are in the margins of society. One way to support those affected by imprisonment is through our prayer. So I invite you to pray during Prisoners Week 2021 and to come to the launch service on that occasion. It takes place at 7 o'clock on Monday, the 22nd of November, in St Mary's Catholic Cathedral here in Edinburgh. It will be followed by refreshments in the Coffee Saints Cafe, just next to the cathedral. Please do join us if you can. You can register in the events section at prisonersweek.org.uk. The service will also see the launch of the Prisoners Week Charter, a practical way for you to support the individual needs of prisoners and their families. God bless.
Shield and reward, my courage and zeal shall inspire. 